Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Kelly Fabian Story. Kelly is a pastor and lawyer. She's authored two books, Sacred Questions, A Transformative Journey Through the Bible, and Holy Vulnerability, Spiritual Practices for the Broken, Ashamed, Anxious, and Afraid. She's married to Steve, and they have three adult daughters. Well, I am delighted to be talking today to Kelly Fabian Story, um, who has written a book that I just absolutely love called Holy Vulnerability. And wow, it's just, even the title itself is fascinating and a paradox. And so thanks so much, Kelly, for joining us on Alabaster Jar. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation. Good, good. Well, you, uh, I'm going to start with a bit maybe of a joke. I don't know, an attorney joke, right? A lawyer <laughs> oh, joke. Great. I know Yeah, you're probably, you maybe heard them all, but um, you, you talk about how you came to faith after practicing law for about eight years. And I don't know if there's any kind of relationship between having practiced for eight years, you really felt you needed Jesus. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one. That is a good one. Yes. Um, that came out of nowhere, actually, although I say that also knowing that God was working on me for quite a while. So for him, it didn't come out of nowhere. And I think in retrospect, I see how it came about. But it was a surprise to me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Tell us a little bit of, about that. Because, I mean, you went to Catholic school, so you were familiar mm-hmm. with the Christian message. You knew about the Bible. Um, but, yeah, then you have this really remarkable short period of time where, yeah, you encounter the living God. Yeah. um, What's interesting is, as you say, I I grew up going to Catholic schools, Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, and always had sort of what I would say is just like a attraction to it, you know, to Jesus. I remember playing in my room with these little like uh, toys I had and would do the like the nativity scene or whatever, you know. Um, So there was always something brewing in there. And um, as I got older, as I went to law school and got married and things like that, I just would, you know, base, basically say I just kind of drifted more and more into, I don't know, secularism or whatever. Um, but always also was drawn to people who were Christians and who were doing things that I thought were amazing. And like, I longed for that, but didn't really have it myself. And I used to say, uh, I think I was born without the ability to have faith, like without this gene that allows you to have faith. I was just simply born without it because I, I desired it in some sense, but just it didn't feel like it worked or clicked or whatever. Um, and so it was after a long trial, um, a real trial, not like a life <laughs> trial, <laughs> um, that I came home and, and just had had some conversations with one of my law partners about Willow Creek and, you know, I'd never heard of it or anything. And I went there after having not gone to church for 20 years. And I mean, the best way I could say it today is that the Holy Spirit came to me and the rest is history. Like in one moment, everything changed. Wow. Wow. And, and so you, uh, 
you eventually decided not to uh, practice law anymore. Uh, you decided to get your master's in New Testament, which is a great <laughs> thing. You saw the light. I mean, as someone yeah, who is also absolutely. a in New Testament, I, that was part <laughs> of the revelation uh, that unfolded. But yeah, how, talk a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I mean, when I became a Christian and was still practicing law for a number of years, um, I just, I, you know, sort of like walking around on fire. Like I just felt like everyone I knew, you know, which makes litigation where you're supposed to be fighting with people very difficult because what I wanted to do was tell them about Jesus and what I really had to do was fight with them. So I, I just started to feel not a conflict in terms of like ethics or, you know, anything like that, but more just like, gosh, this is what I want to pursue. And sort of transferring money from one business to another, which I felt like my practice was, isn't really doing it and isn't really kind of consistent with that necessarily. And so um, I eventually decided to leave my firm. I felt very called by God to leave, although not called into anything specifically. And eventually, um, actually within a pretty short time, was hired at Willow Creek and started their legal aid ministry. And just um, I guess two years maybe after that is I had a small group gathering with small group leaders that I was teaching and I invited Scott McKnight to come. And um, I knew him just kind of in name really and had a couple interactions with him. And it was right after that meeting, he, he called me and said, we have to have coffee. You need to go to seminary. <laughs> and, and that's really how it happened. And I basically said, okay, well, if I can get the money for it, I'll do that. And that's how it happened. Wow. That's, and, and I know you had a thriving ministry among uh, those who were uh, on staff at, at Willow. Um, you, you have a, a beautiful way of writing. And I was so blessed to read Holy Vulnerability, which captures your pastor's heart here. I think mm -hmm. um, you, you write for, as you put it, your book is for those who are broken, ashamed, anxious, and afraid. And I thought, okay, yep, I can, I can tick all of those boxes. Uh, that's pretty much a human experience. But where we really bonded was that you talked about your fear of flying. And that's when I thought, oh, wow, okay, here's a kindred soul. Because <laughs> I, yes. uh, I don't really like being way up there. And I don't want to know that I'm 30,000 feet up, right? Like, yeah. I, I don't yeah. need to, to know those kind of details. But right. anyway, um, what, what prompted you to uh, begin writing this book? Um, it, it was an experience on a plane, um, really, and I describe it in the book, but I was flying to Africa, which is a, um, uh, to Zambia in Africa, which is a very long flight. And I got on the plane and had sort of all the accoutrements that I always bring with me when I fly, you know, my book and my iPad and my magazines and my little pill that I need to take for anxiety and, you know, all the rest. There's just a million things, my headphones, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I look at the guy next to me and he's got nothing with him, literally nothing. Like he's got his boarding pass and he has nothing else. And I'm thinking, oh man, he, he forgot his bag. Like we're going to have to go back and then he's going to delay us and, you know, whatever. So I'm kind of like looking at him to get him like to sort of prompt him just through my brain to realize that he's forgotten his bag, you know, but that doesn't happen. And I said, said something to him about it. I can't remember um, exactly like, did you forget your bag or something like that? And he's like, no, it's just me. You know, I've got everything. And 
I was like stunned in that moment and just realized I felt so like embarrassed almost about all the stuff that I had with me. Like I had felt pretty proud of myself initially. Like, look at how I've got it all together. You know, I have all this stuff and look how this guy doesn't have anything. And then I realized, oh man, what does this say about how I'm feeling about what my trust is really in about fear about you know all the things anxiety etc and that thought of could i fly to zambia with nothing terrified me i was like no no i could not i mean no i could not and so that's Mm -hmm. what got me thinking about um where is god in these moments and that's Mm kind of what the book is about yeah yeah and you emphasize body in this uh in this Mm -hmm. book i want to uh very early on in your introduction you know you talk about how um when if if we look at what jesus taught and the ways the early christians engaged their bodies in their faith we see that our bodies and how we surrender and meet god in embodied ways are important to him you know you talk about jesus touched people jesus healed bodies Mm -hmm. our bodies matter in the living out of our relationship with God. How did you come Mm. to that realization? I think it was, um, I don't remember a specific moment necessarily, but I think it was in realizing that when I have fear or anxiety, the way I experience it is in my body. So it's like, you know, my stomach gets tight or I get shaky, like I'm, you know, not breathing well or something, or my breathing is affected or my hand sweat. That's one of my things. Um, And I realized to overcome, so to speak, this fear, what I do is not, I don't use my body to do that. I try to like think my way out of it. And I realized like that doesn't work. What works is taking this pill, right? Because the pill is going into my body and it's making a difference. So are there other things that instead of like trying to think through them, which is so like, you know, modern slash postmodern, but um, is there a way to do something, to practice something with my body that would actually be more helpful in not curing, not even overcoming, but just being present in those moments? Right, right. You know, you mentioned that in that story about you flying to Zambia, that you also felt embarrassed. And one of the things that you aside from being afraid, um, you do talk about feeling shame and Mm -hmm. how that affects your body. Um, How, Mm -hmm. how did you, how did that play out? I just love how in your book, you're very forthcoming, not, not in a way that is embarrassing (laughs) to the reader. You know, you think, oh, wow, that was a little oversharing there, but in a way that the reader can enter in, uh, enter in how, when did you, uh, or maybe there was a moment or something where you thought, okay, now this is, this is where I'm feeling shame and it's an opportunity for me to um, reflect in this moment mm-hmm. how I'm feeling also in my body. Yeah, I mean, for me, and I, I say this in there somewhere, but um, I have a friend who, I mean, she's not a shame expert, but she certainly, she's a counselor and she sort of knows well how it manifests itself in herself. And she herself feels that quite a bit. And we were having a conversation and, you know, we're talking about like what's been 
um, I don't know how this phrase what's been bothering us lately or whatever. So she goes into this whole thing about shame and you know how she's experiencing that. And she says something like, what about you? And I was like, yeah, shame isn't really something I struggle with. And I go on to whatever. And it's funny to me now to look back because certainly it is, certainly it is. And I wasn't lying. It's that I was not in touch with it. And so I think it was in that conversation, honestly, that I started to go, wait, is that really true? Like, is shame a part of what my experience is? And when does it come up? And I realized that it, it do, I do have that. And it's a lot around body stuff, you know, body image um, generally. And then I mentioned that my hands sweat. And that's always, I mean, since I was a little kid, that's been a very significant um, source of shame. Although I'm not sure until recently, I kind of like would name it that way. Um, but it's, you know, there's like this imperfection in me, this, which really is, what I would now just call human, but there's this imperfection in me that I'm embarrassed about. And like, I, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, and yet, and you know, and that's not always true of shame, but like, it, it's just so amazing how much it impacts my view of myself. Like, oh, I'm, I'm imperfect. I'm distorted in this way. That's not normal. You know, those kinds of things that you might say in your head. Yeah. Yeah. And I so appreciated that um, along with talking about fear and anxiety and shame, you also talk about brokenness. And brokenness is not the same thing as sin. It's a really good category to have, brokenness. Can you fill that out a little bit for us? Yeah. I. Um, so sin, I think of as something that we do individually, you know, that falls short of what we are intended to do or to be by God. And there are certainly plenty of those in my life and, and in our lives to go around. And then there's other things that are just a function of sin in the world, which I would call brokenness. So like, if you look around the world and you know, you just go, man, yeah, something is not right here. You know, like, look at this situation, that situation, and you could always say, well, this person acted this way, or that person acted that way. And yet, sometimes it's just a function of the truth that sin is in the world now and that things are not as they should be. And so, um, you know, like my sweaty hands, like, I mean, is that really a function of sin? I don't think so. Like you look back in scripture and, and look what Jesus says about the blind man, you know, did somebody do something to cause this? Did his parents do something to cause this? Well, no, he says, um, but it's to show God's glory that, you know, that he would be in this, in this situation. And, I, my sweaty hands, I don't think, are a function of anything I did or my parents did, although I sometimes do blame my dad for it. But oh, um, sure. it, it's fair I, to blame your parents, right? Yeah, and as, as parents ourselves, we know our kids do it. You know, it's just absolutely well, I life here. You know? Very kindly passed it on to my daughter <laughs> along with the anxiety. So she's oh, really no. grateful for that. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but I think like it is a function of um, this brokenness in the world. And it's such a minor example, and I don't want to overstate it, but that, you know, we could come up with all kinds of examples that demonstrate that there's just something not right. And that's the world we live in. And so what's amazing is that God has not abandoned this world where there is this brokenness, but instead, as Jesus is, you know, just the amazing example of um, and center of is how he comes to us in the midst of that. Yeah. So what, what is so wonderful, one of the wonderful things about your, uh, your book is you lay out the reality and then you, you bring in what you call spiritual practices. Uh, there are six of them that, that help us to uh, 
not not conquer. I don't want to use a war kind of image, but just live <laughs> with, live into yeah, live ourselves, with. and and acknowledge and maybe em- embrace brokenness as a way to move uh, forward with it, with our um, with who we are, coming maybe to to terms in a good way. You mentioned earlier about kind of feeling like you need to be perfect, and I yeah. think. Maybe a lot of men feel that way. I don't know, but I, sh- I, I sure think a lot of women feel like that. That's the bar. Yeah. And yeah, we absolutely. certainly struggle with body image. I, I, uh, and, and there is a particular, it's often ethnically based mm-hmm. um, or has a race, a racial component to what beauty is. But I think every community has a picture of what in their community a beautiful mm-hmm. woman is. And mm-hmm. lots of women are um, thinking about that. I will say there's one exception I found to that. When I, when I lived over in Kenya, I had the opportunity to do a survey of a number of women. I taught at a seminary and so, uh, that pulled students from across uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And so I was able to interact with the women from a variety of places. And I asked them, how do they feel about their body or how do they, you know, most of them answered, um, well, some, especially Kenya and, and uh, Nigeria, the more Western uh, countries, answered in ideas of like being beautiful uh, or in some kind of beauty category. Uh, others who were from countries um, that were much more impoverished, like Tanzania or uh, something like that, they, they would talk about how they found their bodies so functionally useful Remember mm. one saying, you know, I'm just the right size. I can reach everything I need to in my kitchen. And I oh, thought, wow. oh, that's awesome, you know. But there were uh, two women coming from war-torn countries. One was from Sudan. Mm. It, there was no South Sudan at that point, and had a, a very troubling, difficult um, young life up to that point. And she couldn't answer the question. I finally said, what would somebody, if, if you were going to tell somebody to meet you at the bus and describe yourself to them so that they would know you, what, what would you say? And she said, oh, well, maybe I would say that I was carrying this flower. Mm. I thought, so she, it, it was like this, it, it was, I don't, I don't know, I didn't know what to do with all of that, but it just was stunning to me how, based on your context, mm. how you're going to interact with and see your own embodiment. It was a, that is fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I, I love that you, you take this, these realities that we experience and you say, okay, what are some ways, some practices that will help us um, kind of live, live out our embodied existence in a way mm-hmm. that is, you know, fulfilling and, and a blessing. And you draw from Romans 12, one through three, what, what drew you to that, that passage? Um, it's just, I I don't know if, you know, I don't remember which came first, sort of this idea like, oh, my body has something to say about these things, or if I read this first, but, um, just this idea that Paul articulates here, that in view of God's mercy, which is an interesting way to start it, and he had before this sort of been talking about that, but to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
um, and this is your true and proper worship. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute, because normally what we think is, you know, the, the things that we think like, and, and he does talk about that in a minute, but like, it's so mental and intellectual, at least in the US, at least in the West, Western Christianity, as far as I can tell. And this, and we've so divorced our faith in particular, in my view, from our bodies. And it's like the prayers you pray in your brain, the quiet time you have, all these things that are absolutely um, important and wonderful, but we've divorced them entirely from our bodies for the most part. And so I was, you know, reading this just thinking no, that's like the opposite of what Paul and the Spirit is saying here. And there's all kinds of other examples. And then when you read the scriptures with this idea in mind, you're like, oh, th- I mean, you can't read scripture without thinking about the body. It's everywhere. I mean, it's what people have. It's what they walk around in. It's what Jesus was given, you know, um, to, to join us in. And so, yeah, so that's, it just kind of blew my mind, even though it's like the smallest little phrase, but then it penetrates all of scripture. Oh, yes, absolutely. And we're going to dive into these um spiritual practices. But one of the things I really appreciate about your book is you say, look, I'm not speaking against counselors. I'm not speaking against Mm -hmm. uh, medicines that are helpful for people. I really appreciate this. And I Mm -hmm. think we want our listeners to know this is not an either or this is a both and so absolutely. Yes, I take anxiety medicine even to this day. So I, I believe in both. Yep. Yeah, good. So the first uh, spiritual practice you talk about is surrender. And you tell a great story about a gift your husband got you, a gift (laughs) certificate. Tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Yeah, this is so, I mean, it's not embarrassing in any significant way, but like, it's just so funny and typical of me um, and just kind of how my personality is. So he gives me this gift certificate to a float tank, which um, is this huge, like, bigger than a bathtub thing filled with water and Epsom salt. And it's so filled with, with salt that you float. And so think like the Dead Sea or something. And so you go in and it's like, you know, a very calming space and the music is playing and stuff. And you like, just want to take a nap, but then they take you into this little room and, and you have the whole room to yourself. And then in that room is this tank. And so I'm like thinking, this is, this is great. I'm going to be able to relax. And so, you know, you get in the tank and also the lights are all off unless you turn them on, which part of the story is I turned them on because I was freaking out, but I get into this thing. And I mean, you could like, if you put your arms out, you could reach both sides, but like you had to really try, you know? And so I get in and I'm laying there and truly you float. And you can hardly even make yourself not float. I mean, you have to like push your legs down to, you know, feel the bottom and stuff. So I'm sitting there and you're supposed to like close your eyes. And after five minutes, it's going to get very quiet. And so it starts to get quiet. And I'm, I'm like, just when I'm starting to relax, I'm like, I'm still holding on to the sides. And I kind of jerk, you know, jerk a little bit. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to drown. I'm going to, I can't, I can't let go. Like I just, and it's so dumb because I know intellectually, that I'm not going to drown. I can like easily get out though. Like it was just, it makes no sort of rational sense. But again, it, it demonstrates this idea of how difficult it is for us. I mean, both actually to surrender, to lay there and relax and be, you know, comfortable with the idea that you don't have to like be in control. Like you'll just float there. 
And then kind of on a more, you know, on a different level, this idea of surrender is so hard, so hard for us. And that's what God calls us to um, from beginning to end is to surrender to him. And it just is hard. Yes, yes. And you talk about how body posture is one kind of way for us to be thinking about surrender, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think, I mean, and I'm sure everyone has heard, you know, this idea of surrender. Um, but if you really like try it, what does that even mean? Like, it's sort of like, I don't, I mean, it's hard to sort of disconnect it um, or just it, like as a concept itself is hard to understand or, or do. And so the idea is you can really understand it with your body. And if you think of the times that you're stressed out or that you're afraid, your body is tense. Your body is seeking control and seeking to sort of uh, get control over the situation. And so like this practice is to kind of focus on this, on your body and try to piece by piece almost surrender it and understand it in connection with God and his presence in your life. So how do you surrender? Well, you start with surrendering your whole body. And then that makes it easier to understand how you then surrender your mind and your heart and your actions and your relationships and you know all the rest. Yes, yeah. I find sometimes even changing um, my posture um, and let's say in prayer, um, Typically, mm -hmm. I'll be praying with my coffee cup right beside me in a nice, comfy chair. <laughs> yeah. um, but other times, you know, to kneel and feel the pain mm -hmm. in my joints, mm -hmm. the hardness of the floor against my knees um, is is something I need. I, I need to feel that to really engage what I'm what yeah, I'm thinking. That's evokes, the second. Yeah, go ahead. Evokes, it evokes something like when you physically feel something different or you're uncomfortable in some way, it evokes a sort of um, awareness of your body and an awareness of other things. Exactly, and you you talk about, as a spiritual practice, you talk about prayer and you talk about borrow, borrowed faith mm. uh, as an aspect uh, or in this chapter on prayer. Talk a little yeah. bit about what you mean by this borrowed faith. This is, I mean, my favorite story in all of scripture is the story of, um, the four men who carry their friend down into the presence of Jesus, the guy who's paralyzed. And, and part of the reason the story resonates so deeply with me is that my stepfather was a quadriplegic. And so I am very aware of the need of someone like that to be carried and that you, you cannot do things on your own. And um, so this story of these four men, I mean, you know it, and they, you know, dig through a roof and they somehow lower him down, which I still kind of, I'm thinking of some kind of pulley system, you know, and, and he lands there, hopefully softly in front of Jesus in this crowded house. And um, Jesus says that the faith of the four has healed the paralyzed man. And I think we so often skip this and go, wait a minute, the faith of these friends, they like the the paralyzed man. It doesn't say this, but essentially he borrowed the faith of his friends, and this is uh, so amazing 
because I think so many times we doubt our faith or we just doubt God. It's just part of being human. And sometimes we can't find our way out. It's sort of like trying to think your way out of, you know, being afraid on a plane. Like you can't really do it. You can't also think your way out of doubt sometimes that sometimes you just need to rely on the faith of your four friends or, you know, or whoever. And that um, a way to do that is to rely on, let's say, Lynn, you are feeling particularly, you know, connected with God. And maybe I would ask you to pray for me or, or whatever. But there's also this practice of praying common prayers that, you know, is nothing new. But in our sort of evangelical Western world, everything that's old is now new. Um, but to pray these historic church prayers, to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, these are ways of borrowing the faith of others and drawing close to God through their faith instead of needing to rely, you know, on our own. Yes, yes. I resonated with this. I remember um, our our family experienced a tragedy. My sister uh, was killed suddenly um, at age 26. And um, and I just, I, I had trouble thinking any coherence thoughts, mm. but I, I also found it very difficult to pray just because yes. you have to think when you pray. And I had a lot of trouble just in general thinking. Yeah. And there was a woman that came by. She had, uh, she had had a significant suffering moment in her life as well. And she came by and she said, um, I just want you to know that every day for a year, every day, I will pray for you. And I thought, oh, that meant so much to me because days would go where I just, mm. I, as I say, I, I couldn't think. And, but I knew Elaine was praying mm. and That's that beautiful. borrowed, you mentioned, you know, that borrowed faith, that borrowed prayer. It's like, okay, sort of the, uh, the body of Christ working, you know, yes, and, yes. uh, and in, it's an amazing gift we can give another to say, yes. all right, I, I can, I can, uh, help you here. Like the four yeah. friends of the paralytic. And it gets you out of your own. I mean, it's part of the thing that why I say it's a practice in this book is because it gets you out of your own self and it gets you focused on like being present for those who are going through something. And it may be something similar to what you're going through, um, but it, it, it just gets the focus off of you and toward others in love. Yes. Yeah. And now we're going to switch gears because you one of your spiritual practices, the next one you talk about is laughter, which sounds a bit in Congress to talk <laughs> about that after we just uh, spoke so much about grief. But, um, you know, you're talking about there. there's just great freedom in not taking yourself real mm -hmm. seriously, huh? Yeah. And there's, I mean, anybody who hears this idea, they go, oh, yeah. Like, if you think about it for half a second, you realize, yeah, that's that actually is really helpful. Like people talk about how helpful it is for the soul. And um, I, you know, if you are a serious person, which I, you know, can tend to be, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about everything, you know, sometimes I'm like, stop thinking. And I, I tell the story about these uh, two foster kids that we had for a period of time that, and we're still connected to them. And, you know, and it's like, anybody with kids knows it's like just chaos when you have little kids all the time, you know, all the time. And my husband and I, who are empty nesters, were not used to this kind of chaos. So it was very jarring for us. But man, we would have these dance parties and like, you couldn't help it. It just was so funny. And 
light and like even if you were in a bad mood like you just i mean listening to baby shark 207 times in a row that will make you either die or laugh so you might <laughs> as well laugh um but really in moments of pain i mean think about how many kind of funerals where it's like you just want to laugh and what is that about you know there's something freeing in it there's something healing in it and i i believe god is present in it um and there's to me, that's why, um, and I'm not really saying there's a direct, you know, corollary or connection, but like, that's why when we have significant emotion, grief, or whatever, we want to laugh. Yeah, yeah. And there's, I'm so glad you, you put this in, because I think at times, we think of joy, but it's almost like a somber thing, you know, yeah. and like, oh, yeah, I'm really joyful. <laughs> yeah, we can laugh, right. And then you talk yeah. about digging in the dirt right um which yeah. another spiritual practice and mm -hmm. uh yeah that kind of caught me by surprise talk to us a little mm -hmm. bit about why digging in the dirt is good yeah this is this is one of my favorite ones and and also one i have to kind of remind myself of often um it's very grounding and that's not intended as a pun perfect um but this one came to me in a um moment of grief after my stepfather had passed away and um and and honestly i mean there's grief with that but then there's also you know when your family is around and um for extended periods you know you just kind of get on each other's nerves or the things that you know you kind of have learned to live without once you move on and become an adult and you know my mom and my sister were there and we're all together all the time and so it just you know it gets to be where you're kind of running low i would say on emotional capacity and so I went out and was kind of uh, trimming these leaves in my in my front yard and ah, just feeling this wash of peace. And it wasn't the thing that often we have to be careful of. It's like you could look at a leaf and be like, this leaf symbolizes, you know, God's goodness to me. And you sort of make it into some spiritual experience when it's just a leaf, you know, or, or whatever. And it wasn't that. It was, it was literally just touching the earth and touching creation that gave me peace and made me think of, you know, being grateful and thinking of how I was being impatient and all of it. There's something just about the creatureliness of us that we so easily forget that, oh yeah, we're from this dirt, you know, we're from this earth and we really are not in control. God is and he made us. And there's a submission piece there that I have found not um, scary, but so comforting and grounding. Mm, yes. I think the more you do that, which is why they're practices and not like events, the more you um, experience that kind of peace. Oh, yeah. I, I have to say, uh, I also love mowing the lawn. And mm. just the smell, mm -hmm. now granted, I was using yeah. a machine, but the smell of the cut grass mm. and um, just the rip repetition back and forth back yeah. and forth it was very soothing yeah yeah um, yeah you talk also about a practice of encouraging others um and i want you to talk about this but i i also had a question um that i that i'd like you to to answer um mm -hmm. alongside this encouraging others and being generous i feel like women can do that to a fault. Mm -hmm. So as you talk about encouraging others and, and generosity, the spiritual practice, um, 
could you specifically describe it such that you mm -hmm. distinguish it from often the expectation being walked that, over <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. right doormat yeah. or well just let the you know yeah woman do it yes i hear you um and yeah agree so i think first of all i want to say that encouraging others as i've written about it and as i believe scripture talks about it is not about being nice although of course that's sort of part of it it's really about and this this definition is it's almost too much but it's this total commitment to be god's instrument in other people's lives i believe that's what we are called to um but i also believe that we're not called to um, run ourselves down so that we cannot then be instruments, right? So some of these other practices in here are for, I mean, the digging in the dirt, the, these things, like you have to be connected to the vine. You have to be connected to God, to Christ, to do anything at all. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so I just want to emphasize that um, this is not about like, um, there, you know, there's this very common trend right now about you know making time for yourself and all that stuff which is true but i want to say it slightly differently which is making time to be connected to the vine which is where you're going to draw any kind of strength any kind of love any kind of patience that you might have to be able to encourage others so while it is taking care of yourself it's taking your care of yourself in the presence of god um and then encouragement is just it's hard this is the hardest one for sure um, because it isn't just, you know, being kind and kind of saying the right things at the right times and saying way to go, although that can be part of it. It's, it's being here in this world for the sake of others. And it's the hardest one to kind of do on a regular basis, um, because we're so self-centered. Um, but there's lots of examples of how to do that. And if you look at the life of Christ, I mean, he lived his life for the sake of others. That's what he did. And he got tired, but he also rested. And he took time to connect with the Father in order to be able to do that. Yes, yes. You know, you talk about connected, and that leads us to this last practice. Do mm -hmm. uh, such a great, uh, great story connected with it, eating together. Yes. And you, you and your daughter did a group meal for a while. Tell us a little bit about that and about why eating together is a great spiritual practice. Yeah, this this was really fun, and and we're actually going to kind of restart it. I think after the first of this year, but um, there used to be a big event, or I mean, there still is at Willow um, in August, and I had come to know a lot of people from Africa and other places that would come to this event. And so I started by thinking, oh, we should have them over for dinner. And then as I started thinking about it more, I started thinking, oh, we could like, um, you know, share what we're grateful for. Because when you have people from all over the world and all from all different kinds of walks of life, think of the different things that you might be grateful for and think of how it would build gratefulness in you because you're like, oh, this person's happy they just have clean water or, you know, whatever. Um, and so that's kind of how it started and we all gathered and it was just this random group of people, some from Zambia, from Malawi, from South Africa, then some from the south side of Chicago. Two women, this first dinner, had just gotten out of prison. It was crazy, like that day or two days before and they'd come because um, they were connected to a friend of mine. We had a, a friend of mine who um, was homeless. We had people that worked at the church, you know, just this a couple lawyers, you know, which always throws a wrench in things. Um, so just this very random group. And um, 
it was stunning what happened. Um, I had people bring, I, I had some food, had people bring food. So there's a level of, you know, input people have had, even if they only bring like cookies from Jewel or whatever. Um, and we all sat down and sort of started this meal. And it was like a connection, a deep connection was made as we started to eat. And then we started to share and I asked everyone, you know, the worst question that people hate at Thanksgiving or whatever, like, what are you grateful for? But it was more like, what are you celebrating God's goodness about today? God's goodness. And the things, I mean, it did not start off with like, I'm grateful for this meal. It started off with like, I went through a divorce this year and this is what I'm grateful for. Da, 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 da. Um, so we were off the deep end immediately. And I, I completely believe that it was based on food because there's something shared and human about eating, which is why I think also Jesus so often um, centered his ministry and his work around food. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So those spiritual practices, those habits that we can develop that is um, renewing of our minds, but it's also, mm -hmm. and importantly, as you mentioned that, uh, a living sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I started our bodies. Yeah. Our bodies being a living sacrifice. The title of your book is holy vulnerability. And I mentioned at the beginning, I see that as a paradox almost. And I think mm -hmm. that's because holy to me can be kind of a category, you mm -hmm. know, whereas vulnerability mm -hmm. is an experience that I have in the body. And you've pulled both of those together to say, no, actually the, the mind and the body express both mm. can at, you know, at the, at the same time, and we can live into that. Um, as we, as we close, I, uh, I want to say that you've, um, decided to shift out from the, the church work and you're back mm. now, um, as an attorney, uh, just recently, right? You, you started yeah. back just recently. How is that going? Oh, it's going really well. Um, it's it's really fun to be able to advise lots of different, uh, we represent nonprofits and churches. So it's not totally out of the church world. Uh, we I have the opportunity to advise nonprofits and churches in some of these sorts of things and carrying forward some reconciliation work as well, which I'm loving because I, I just completely believe there's a way, even though it's so often uh, they seem, you know, distinct. There's a way for the law and faith to connect in a really powerful way. Um, and for like reconciliation and things that we typically think of in the faith world to be, um, to help transform the ways we think about the law and the, its need to always be antagonistic. In fact, I think there's this great sort of, um, I don't know, wholeness or something that comes when you bring them together. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I'm so glad. I'm so mm. glad you wrote this book, Holy Vulnerability. I truly, I loved it. I recommend it Thank to you. all of our listeners. It's, um, it's the kind of thing for me, at least, it's the kind of thing that I can go back year after year and read and remind myself and encourage myself in these in these practices. So thank you so much, Kelly. And thanks for coming on to the Alabaster Jar. It was so nice talking with you. Thank you so much. That was so fun. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Alabaster Jar podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation with Kelly Fabian's story, we've left links to her website and her book, Holy Vulnerability, in today's episode description. 
we have a special series in store for the month of December, so be sure to hit subscribe so that you can be notified each week when we upload a new episode.